There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Hopefully Pastor John and Gloria will be back next Sunday. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And if you can, please stand and go down to verse 10. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself and has gone on around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, when you were, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel, and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them till they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Father, once again, we thank you that we can gather together this morning and learn from your word. There are so many great lessons to be found in what we're going to be going on over this morning, Lord. And I pray that we would just make them real in our lives and not just hear them, but live them out. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I recently read a story about some children who were lined up in the cafeteria of a Catholic elementary school for lunch. At the head of the table was a large pile of apples. The nun had made a note and posted it on the apple tray. It read, Take only one apple. God is watching. Moving further along down the line at the other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. In front of the plate, a child had written a note. It read, Take all the cookies that you want. God is watching the apples. (laughs) In our story today, that is exactly how King Saul seems to view God. He thinks, if I can get the Lord to look at my victory over the Amalekites, maybe he won't notice the fact that I was disobedient concerning the rest of his commands. In the chapter before us this morning, the cracks that we have seen in Saul's character 
becomes crevices into which he will ultimately and finally fall. Here we see the sad story of a man who began well and who had the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who had the call of God, but whose flaws will ultimately destroy him. The analysis of Saul's failure in the biblical record is really quite remarkable. There are indications, as we have seen, that Saul had a number of significant accomplishments, especially in the military sphere. He was clearly a capable leader in certain aspects. These, however, are mentioned with extreme brevity. The 15th chapter of 1 Samuel is a brilliant study in the deceptive and the corrupting power of sin. Look at verse 10 with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. This section recounts the decisive events that led to Saul's rejection. Incredibly, we read that God actually says, I regret, or literally, I am grieved that I have made Saul king. We all know that God is sovereign, but he is not impassable. Now, impassable is an old theological term that means that a person is incapable of feeling or that they are unable to experience suffering. And God does not fall into that category. Here's what I mean. Though God knows all that will happen and all that we will do, at the same time, he can be pleased by what he knew would happen, and he can also be grieved by what he knew would happen. So the sovereignty of God does not render him emotionally incompetent. We will get more fully into the tension of God's sovereignty and his immutability when we reach 29, and we deal with the issue of, does God ever change his mind? Now, that simple fact accounts for these terrible words from God, where he says, I regret that I have made Saul the king. A little later, when we reach verse 29, we will consider the implications of this remarkable statement that God regrets something. Before the moment, we note that the translation seems to have had struggle with the appropriate word to describe what God was doing here. The older Revised Standard Version had, I repent that I had made Saul king. That sounded so strange that the NIV put it, I am grieved that I have made Saul king. The New American, Trans, New American Standard translate, translates it as, I regret that I made Saul king. But regardless of your translation preference, they each present us with the problem of how sovereignty works. The astonishing thing is that God so enters into the involvement with his creation, and in particular with humanity, and even more particularly with his people, that their failures actually affect him. The Lord was so grieved by Saul's failure to listen to the sound of his words that he regretted making him king. The depth of the tragedy here may be more appreciated if we recall the only other occasion where this language is used in the same way. The only other time this Hebrew was used was in the days of Noah. This is Genesis 6, 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and thought of his heart was evil all the time. 
And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Where it says there in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord was sorry, that is exactly the same verb that we read as, I regret, in 1 Samuel 15, 11. As I said earlier, we will get into the subject of the issue of God changing his mind when we get to verse 29. But please note that not only did Saul's actions grieve the Lord, it also grieved the heart of Samuel. How I really appreciate Samuel's heart. He wasn't ticked off. He didn't stomp around the room or put his fist through the wall. He was simply heartbroken. He truly hurt for Saul. And by the way, sometimes I think that we can erroneously think that our sin only affects us. But in reality, our sins can have far-reaching ramifications in the lives of others. Now, perhaps if you lived isolated on the middle of an island in the sea, then perhaps your private sin wouldn't affect anyone but yourself. However, since the maxim is, no man is an island, there is a good chance that you have a family or at least friends and acquaintances that you come into contact with on a continual basis. And all of them will be affected in some way by your sin because our sin has consequences. Look at verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he went, set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. We now come to early the next morning. And after a sleepless night, Samuel must have known that this had all the makings of being a terrible day. We read, And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. The prophet understood that the confrontation with the king could not be put off. How Samuel's heart must have sunk to hear that Saul had erected a monument for himself. Notice those words, a monument for himself. Presumably, it commemorated a great victory over the Amalekites. What's interesting is that in Exodus chapter 7, we find that Moses would also build a monument after defeating the Amalekites. However, there was one gigantic difference. Exodus 17:15 reads, And Moses built an altar and called its name Jehovah Nisi, which is translated as, The Lord is my banner. That monument celebrated the Lord by declaring, The Lord is my banner, whereas Saul's monument was to himself. Did this man have no idea what he had done? The impropriety of this monument will be apparent even to Saul before the end of the day. In the eyes of the soldiers and of the Jewish people, and even to Saul, they think that they had won a great victory over a long-term enemy. But in God's eyes, Saul was a failure. Yet the king was so impressed with himself that he went to Carmel and erected a stone monument in his own honor. And then he went to Gilgal, where ironically, he had previously failed the Lord and Samuel. 
Yet Saul greets Samuel with a joy that is in total contradiction to the known reality of what is going on. Saul said something to the effect of, Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! Glory to God! Victory, O oh victory, tis mine! But the duplicity of his spiritual jargon could barely be heard above the bleeding of the sheep he was supposed to have destroyed. Now, at this junction in Saul's life, we have to ask ourselves, did he truly believe that he had actually obeyed the commandment of the Lord? Or is he being deceptive on purpose, not wanting to admit his sin? Since we aren't explicitly given the answer, let's look at both cases as there are lessons for us in both possibilities. I have my own personal opinion, which is the correct one, that I will share with you here directly. First, let us consider that Saul truly believed he had been obedient. Now, if we take Saul at face value, if we give him the benefit of the doubt, and if we assume that he has not deliberately and consciously tried to cover up his failure to fully obey God's word, we can see something here of sin's deceitfulness. Listen to the warning from Hebrews 3.12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And therein lies the danger. The very sinfulness that leads to disobedience often blinds the sinner to the reality of his or her disobedience. But as in the experience of Saul, a clear conscience is no guarantee of innocence. It will take the probing, searching light of the Word of God to bring us to recognize our guilt. The propensity and the ability that we have for self-deception is absolutely staggering in a human life. There are times when we think that everyone and everything else is the problem in our lives. It's like the concerned husband who went to a doctor to talk about his wife Doctor, I think my wife is deaf because she never hears me the first time. Sometimes I have to repeat myself three or four times before she'll finally answer me. Well, the doctor replies, go home tonight and stand about 15 feet from her and say something to her. If she doesn't reply, move about five feet and say something again. Keep doing this and so that way we'll get an idea about the severity of her deafness. Well, sure enough, the husband goes home and does as he's instructed. He starts out about 15 feet from his wife as she's in the kitchen and chopping up some vegetables, and he says, Honey, what's for dinner? She doesn't reply. He moves about five feet closer and says again, Honey, what's for dinner? Still no reply. He gets fed up and moves right behind her about an inch away from her ear and asks again in a loud voice, Honey, what's for dinner? She replies, I've told you for the fourth time we're having vegetable stew. <laughs> we can be just like that, though. It's very difficult and humbling to admit and realize that very often the biggest problem that we have is the one that stares back at us in the mirror every morning. Robert Burns, the noted Scottish poet, wrote, Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice, 
has often led me wrong. Now, personally, I'm of the other viewpoint. With everything that in the Scripture has been revealed to us about Saul, I believe he is purposely being deceitful, not wanting to address his sin. And if I am correct in that, he has the unmitigated gall to look at the prophet Samuel directly in his eyes and proclaim, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have done the commandments of the Lord. Saul's comment reminds me of one of my favorite Bible verses. Maybe you know it. It goes, Liar, liar, pants on fire. If you're wondering where that is, that's First Bill 7.22. I'm of the opinion that Saul's greeting was sheer hypocrisy. He had no blessing to give Samuel, and he had certainly not performed the will of the Lord. First, he lied to himself, thinking he could get away with the deception. And then he lied to Samuel, who, by the way, already knew the truth. Well, things are about to get a whole lot worse for Saul. Verse 14, please. The Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of his sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? The prophet says, What I'm hearing isn't good, Saul. In fact, it sounds pretty bad. <laughs> I learned that in kindergarten. <laughs> Samuel says, if what you're saying is true, what's with the animal concert that I'm hearing? You've heard of Woodstock? Well, this is livestock. I made that up all by myself, copyright pending. Numbers 32.23 tells us that your sin will find you out. That's a strange turn of a phrase, isn't it? What does it mean where it says that our sin will find us out? I think it basically means that eventually our sins will bear fruit. And once they finally do come to fruition, we will be exposed to their consequences upon our behavior. This is fully explained in James 1.13. I've asked Lisa to include it in our slides so you can follow along. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone himself. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is foregrown, brings forth death. Have you ever noticed that that passage that we just read is like a small-scale version of the human life from the cradle to the grave, in regards to how temptation operates in our lives. Here's what I mean. First, it says we are enticed. Now, following that, the lust or enticement results in a conception. And after conception, you then have a birth. And then following the birth, eventually we will see that sin foregrown until it finally brings about death. I am firmly persuaded and deeply convinced that there is no exception to this. Every time that I sin, sooner or later, it will track me down, find me out, and bring about death in my life in one way or the other. We can all be sure that any time we sin, that sin will eventually find us out. And that sin will often expose us 
at the most inopportune of times. I love the story that Tony Campolo tells about himself. He was invited to speak at a Baptist church in, of all places, Las Vegas. I wish Pastor John was here to hear this this morning, but as you know, he's actually in Las Vegas, where he is referred to on the gambling circuit as John Baby Needs a New Pair of Shoes Coffee. Actually, that last part wasn't true, and I really appreciate it if we could just keep that between us. Anyway, back to Compolo. They put him up in one of those casino hotels, and he was told to wait in the lobby on Sunday morning, and a deacon would eventually come and pick him up. So he got there early and was just standing in the lobby, fidgeting and waiting on the deacon, and he finally put his hand in his pocket to discover that he had one sole quarter in there. Now, Compolo isn't a gambler, but he thought, I may never get back to Las Vegas again. So he goes over to the slot machine, puts the quarter in, pulls down the arm, and believe it or not, he hits the jackpot. A multitude of quarters came gushing out and cascading all over the floor. Now in a full-blown panic, Compolo began shoving them in his briefcase, and when that was full, he started stuffing them in his pockets until they were full. He he then began cramming them into his coat pockets until his pants were drooping with all the weight. He looked like those kids who wear their pants halfway down to their knees today, but not on purpose. He finally gets them all put away just as the Baptist deacon walks into the door. And upon hearing the commotion, as Compolo was jingling and jangling all the way to the car, the deacon says, you haven't been gambling, have you? That is the sort of thing that Saul is experiencing right now. Now, there is a slight over-translation here. Literally, Samuel said, What then is the sound of sheep in my ears and the sound of the oxen that I hear? If you recall from verse 1 that we covered last week, that's the one thing the king was supposed to do. And that was to listen to the sound of what God would be saying. But instead... The air was now filled with the sound of his failure to do that very thing. This whole account really has the makings of a Saturday Night Live skit. I mean, it would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Look at verse 15 with me. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Malachites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed." Listen to Saul as he begins to use his double-talking deception in an attempt to camouflage his conduct. He had a very pious reason for not sparing the, or for sparing the animals. He wanted to have excellent sacrifices to offer to the Lord. Now, this, of course, was just an attempt to cover up his disobedience with pious pretense. Not only that, Saul tries to shift the blame to the people, Notice what he says. They brought them from the Amalekites, as if to say, I certainly had nothing to do with this. Next, please observe that he then tells Samuel, and the rest we have destroyed. He then took credit for the part that had been done correctly, as if to say, that was the only part that I was involved in, the obedient part. Saul blamed the soldiers even for sparing the spoils, but surely as their commander-in-chief, 
he could have controlled them had he wanted to. It says, they spared the best, but we utterly destroyed the rest. With Saul, was always someone else's fault. As we have studied in the book of 1 Samuel, we have seen over and over again that Saul has a habit of substituting saying for doing and of making excuses instead of confessing his sins. No matter what happened, it was always someone else's fault. Where have we heard something like that before? The man said, The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Following the sin of Adam and Eve, God came over to Adam and said, What have you done? Adam replies, It wasn't me. It was the woman that you gave me. If you'll remember, God, when it was just you and I, we were doing just fine until you made that woman. In one sentence, he puts two people, God and Eve, between him and his responsibility for his sin. I can almost imagine Adam saying, So listen, Lord, I'll be over here peeling an orange while you and Eve work this thing out. Saul stood in the great tradition of sinners like Adam, who deny responsibility for their own sin and instead choose to blame others. We have all played that game this morning, sometimes even with utter sincerity. We convince ourselves that the blame is not our own, and if it's our parents, our circumstances, the system, the government, but it's never our fault. Did you also notice that in the course of this self-deceived defense, Saul let slip an indication of the real problem. His words betrayed the separation from the God whose voice he was meant to be hearing. He says, For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. Here it is, your God. He called him not our God, certainly not my God, but your God. And speaking of Samuel, that, of course, is exactly what God had said to Samuel the previous night in verse 11, where we read, He has turned his back from following me. Saul's one-sentence defense provides a brilliant study in the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 16, And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel, and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? It was seen that Samuel has finally reached the end of his patience concerning Saul and this whole ordeal. The prophet says, Saul, just shut your pie hole and listen for a minute. Pie hole may not be in your translation. Samuel then reminds Saul of better days. What was the trait that was initially found in Saul? He was little in his own eyes. The New Testament equivalent of that is James 4.10 where it says, Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and then he will lift you up. The world says, Promote yourself. Do whatever it takes to climb the ladder. If you have to step on a few people and leave destruction in your wake, so be it. But just look out for number one. 
But the scripture teaches us just the opposite. We are called to emulate Christ and to be servants, always putting the needs of others over our own. Allow me to put in another plug for Sunday school because the book we will be studying is called The Jesus Style, and it was written to deal with the very things that we are talking about this morning. Verse 18, please. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? All sin is sin, but not all sin is created equal. Here's what I mean. In the Bible, you have what is called sins of ignorance. These are sins that we commit because we have not been enlightened enough to know that they are right or wrong. Then there are sins that are sins against the will, meaning these are sins of weakness, sins of which we actually grieve over. These are Romans chapter 7 sins where it says, The good that I wish I do not do, but instead practice the sins that I wish I didn't do. It is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from the wrath to come? I think Jesus Christ, our Lord, who will set me free from this body of death. These are the type of sins that we hate and struggle with and mourn over. So far, we see that we can be involved in sins of ignorance and also in sins of weakness. But then there are sins that we are looking at right now. The Old Testament calls these sins with a high hand, which is an uplifted hand against God where we know what is right, but we defiantly and arrogantly commit the sin anyway. It's the sin of the prodigal son. Give me my my share of the estate so I can be free from the authority of my father. This is the sin that Saul is guilty of here. His sin wasn't because of ignorance or even because of weakness. His sin was open and defiant rebellion against God. Now, in Deuteronomy 17.11, it speaks of what happens when the priest of God tells someone who comes for advice on what to do in any particular matter. It reads, According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now, the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord, your God, or the judge, that man shall die. So you should put away the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. The Hebrew word for presumption means to boil, as in a liquid that would rise up when it was heated. When we apply that to a human life, it pictures a person who says, when the heat is on and when I am pushed to the limit, I'm going to disobey and boil over in defiance and disobedience. That passage says that that sort of person will die. In other words, what God is saying is, I will not have a man who defiantly raises his fist to heaven and sticks out his tongue and says, no, I will not do it. And you can't make me. God says the man who does that sort of thing in the Old Testament was to be put to death. He says you shall purge the evil from Israel. 
God says, I'm not going to have a person in my covenant people stand in bold defiance and insolence against me. Why? Because that person will become what the Scripture calls a root-bearing poisonous fruit that will then infect the rest of the nation. Well, in closing, we stand in anticipation as the prophet's question hangs in the air waiting on Saul's reply. What will Saul's response be? Come back next week to find out. And Lord, we see so many things in Saul's life that I've seen in my own life where I have just openly did the wrong thing. I pray, Lord, that you'd reveal to us this morning by your Holy Spirit that when we do such things, there is always consequences. It may not be today or next week, but eventually, Lord, we know that you are not mocked, and whatever a man sows, that they also will eventually reap. I pray, Lord, that you would just give us a new, a new hatred of sin, a new distrust in our own abilities apart from you, and just help us, Lord, to walk in the Spirit that we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We ask in Christ's name, amen. That being the first Sunday.